Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Okay, we've got a really cool episode of One-Shot Comic Books this afternoon. I'm very excited that we have a great guest star, Bill Morrison, here to talk about a couple of comics that are both one-shots by the same creator. And for those of you who are not super familiar with Bill, he is a fantastically talented and creative uh, person in the comics industry. He was the creative director behind Bongo Comics for many years, the writer and creator of uh, and artist of Roswell, The Little Green Man, a great miniseries. He did the amazing graphic novel adaptation of Yellow Submarine that came out in 2018 from Titan Books. And he wrote, wrote the miniseries Captain Carrot and the Final Arc. He is also a participant in the Eisner Awards on many occasions, and I think he served as the uh, MC for the evening a couple of times. And he belongs to a very exclusive club, which is editors of Mad Magazine. There's only like five people in that club, and you are one of them, Bill. So that's amazing. Well, thank you, Adam. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that still blows my mind. You know, that I have the, I have the same job as Harvey Kurtzman. Uh, incredible, right? Yeah, that's amazing. I still can't believe it. All those years I worked at D.C., I was just thrilled that I could walk down the halls and talk to, you know, the mad guys, John Ficarra or, um, you know, Sam Viviano or you when we were in L.A. It was just fantastic, you know. Yeah, it was it was a great time. Mm -hmm. I used to get off the elevator and there's, you know, coming in, walking from the elevator to my office there was a Batman statue, mm -hmm. like a big full-size Batman figure. And every morning I would think, I go to work at Batman's house. <laughs> right. It's so cool. It is amazing, yeah. <laughs> People are always just blown away by the, the offices in New York and in L.A., both, because, you know, they were decorated with all sorts of comic book stuff, and a lot of places you couldn't say that. Yeah, I mean those those doors were amazing. The, mm -hmm. the glass doors with the character art on them. Right. So we're going to talk about two comics. What do they have in common, Bill? The one thing they have in common is, as you mentioned, the creator of both of these issues is the one and only El Maestro Sergio Aragonés. Yep. Boy, do I love his work, and I know you do too. The first one is called DC Superstars, issue number 13, and it's called DC Superstars Presents The Wild and Wacky World of Sergio Aragonés. that's right on the cover. It was published and went on sale December 30th, 1976, and DC Superstars, as you can guess, had 12 issues before this. Most of them were reprints. I was just doing a little research on it, and like, there's something like four issues before this that were all DC superstars of space, you know, Adam Strange reprints and stuff. 
and almost everything in that was in the series before this issue was uh, reprint material. And then the issue right before this, they started creating more new material with um, a terrific one-shot Superboy story, and then this, and then, you know, a couple issues later, it was Star Hunters, which, uh, you know, didn't last too long, but it was DC's little Star Wars rip-off attempt. And then the origin of the Huntress a couple issues after that. So, you know, the, the series went on to create its own legacy. But here, this is a real interesting book. Cause very few, uh, It was pretty much unheard of for a DC comic to spotlight a cartoonist this way. By the title, you would think that this was part of a series that had uh, artists or writers spotlighted every issue. Mm-hmm. You know, you think it was like DC Superstars presents Carmen Infantino. <laughs> yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, the only other examples I could think of of anything like that, which I also looked into, was um, there was another series that was from about five years earlier that had a Carmen Infantino issue and also a Joe Kubert issue, but they never really came back to that afterward. Yeah, those were I remember those. Those were great. Yeah, we've done more of those. Yeah. I kind of wish, I, I mean, I kind of wonder why anyone would have, you know, looked at this series and thought, you know what we need is a Sergio Aragonis issue. Well, I, you know, I actually put in a call to Sergio to ask him about this. Oh, um, fantastic. And, and he hasn't gotten back to me yet. What? <laughs> well, you know, to be fair, I didn't think of calling him until this morning. Uh, well, what are you going to um, do? I should, I should have got on this sooner. But um, <laughs> when, you, when you read this issue, it becomes pretty apparent. And I'm, I'm guessing here, but I, I mean, it's, it's a fairly obvious guess that they canceled Plop, yep. which, which Sergio was heavily involved in. And it looks like they had a lot of extra material that wasn't published, and they probably folded it into this book. You know what? I agree with that 100%. Particularly, I'm going to jump ahead here when we get to, where is it? The Return of the Elephant, which is a story that's about two-thirds of the way through the issue. Mm -hmm. And it's a sequel to a story from Plop Number 6. Right. That is, um, you know, by Sergio and a writer who's credited throughout this issue as Chester P. Hazel, but elsewhere you can find it, you know, records that say that though Chester P. Hazel was actually Steve Skates. Yeah. So um, I, I heard that he was kind of having a feud with uh, an editor or something and uh-huh. he didn't want to use his name on some of the materials. So he came up with a nom de plume there. Right. You know, I also was wondering just moments ago, really, because Sergio did, like a lot of mad artists, did a whole bunch of original paperbacks that were, I guess, enormously popular. I'm, I, they had to be because they just kept going on and on. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if those were happening like contiguously with this issue, and maybe that's what led DC to think, you know, we could get some mileage out of Sergio as a, a name author. Probably because yeah, he was um, he was obviously well known as one of the usual gang of idiots at Mad. Mm-hmm. Certainly by the late seventies or mid seventies. So I mean, you know, he definitely had a name, and I think you're right. Those those paperbacks that had his name all over it, all all over them, um, and there were a few Mad artists like that. Al Jaffe, yep, 
got his own paperbacks and a few others. Um, so I think people knew who Sergio was. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean, he did a lot of stuff for DC from the, I think from about 67. So this, you know, he, he'd been doing stuff for DC for 10 years at this point. Right. I remember seeing his name as a writer on Batlash, you know, many years later when, but those, those came out around 1969, 1970. So let's take a look at this issue a little bit because it has a really kind of fun theme running through it. Mm-hmm. And well, first of all, another yeah. another thing that ties it to Plop is um, the storytellers, yes. Abel and Eve, mm-hmm. from House of Mystery and House of Secrets, and I forget what Eve's title was. I'm not sure either, but they. Eve, in particular, talks about plop quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, this the word funny. plop is all through this. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a wraparound story where they they go into the world of Alice in Wonderland. Right? What a funny thing. Yeah. And then they start telling these stories to uh, the Mad Hatter and the March Hare and, you know, different various characters as they're kind of on the run through through the book. Right. Um, Looking glass. Yeah, the Queen of Hearts uh, court. Yeah. It's really cool. And we talk about creative talents, but to me, it's like he's overflowing with it. It's just in- endlessly inventive. Like the, the layouts, the kinds of stories, the way he draws characters are also distinctive. Yeah. Yeah, everybody looks different. They, You know, you don't get that oh, that's just the same character with a different haircut. Yeah, for sure. It's amazing. One of this, this might be jumping ahead a little bit. No, actually, actually, it's the first story when you get past the the introductory Alice in Wonderland bookend. Mm-hmm. It's a story that it's credited to a dialogue by uh, Chester P. Hazel, but story and art by Sergio. And it's, it's, it's like a environmental story. Oh yeah, about the Alaska pipeline, right? But it could have been an EC horror story. The way it's yes, it's, it definitely has that structure of like um, building horror, and yet you know it's supposed to be funny. I mean, it's got a fifteen-word title or something here. Yeah, <laughs> right. So he doesn't. He doesn't make you think no this is just straight up scary yeah it's the 800 mile oil pipeline project to link north slope wells with the southern alaska shipping port of valdez incident (laughs) that's the title fantastic yeah (laughs) he's obviously doing layouts that tell the story so he must have had that long title in mind it's not like that was off the script you know by uh steve skates yeah I agree. And, uh, yeah, I love this story. It has the kind of, you know, the EC stories where the the horrible character gets his comeuppance at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, not, to, not to spoil it. I mean, come on. It is, <laughs> it is over a 50-year-old comic. So. It is. <laughs> right? And then... There's a few short pieces that are like one pagers that those, I think for sure, must have been leftovers from Plop. And again, it's all just pantomime, really inventive, crazy stuff. 
Yeah, the pantomime stories are some of my favorites because he just does it so well. Like a lot of times when something's pantomime, you have to stare at it for a while to figure out what's going on. Right. But Sergio actually took a mime class Mm -hmm. when he was younger. And he always says it taught him how to act and how to act on the page. Sure. As a cartoonist, you know, so he did things with expressions and gestures and layout that somebody who didn't have that training might not have thought of. Right, right. So after those one-pagers, we go into the um, Queen of Hearts part of the story where it is Abel's. Is this Abel? Abel's turn to tell a story. Right. About the Night of the Drooling Snarl. (laughs) <laughs> and I had to look because of uh, the credits list story idea, Mr. Steve Clement, who was, I guess, a fanzine contributor. Oh, okay. I was wondering who, who Steve Clement was. Yeah, I, I did a little, just a teeny bit of research and I was like, oh, he wrote for like the comic reader or something like that. So he, was, he probably was just a visitor to the DC offices. One thing they used to do at Plop was they took story ideas from readers. Ah, and so that might have been, um, you know, he might have been a fan and reader, even though he was, you know, in the fan press. He might have sent in an idea that they uh, riffed on. Yeah. And you know what occurs to me? I, I apologize. I should have thought of this sooner. But we should probably talk for just a split second here about Plop itself, because it was such an unusual book that really crossed the lines between horror and comedy. Yes. I mean, it lasted about 24 issues, I think, a lot of original material. And I think most people know it, if they know it at all, for the Basil Wolverton covers on a lot of issues and a couple of issues that had original stories drawn by Bernie Wrightson. Yeah. And some Wally Wood covers, too. And Wally Wood covers, too, and, and other good artists. George Evans, I think, drew some stuff, and Frank Robbins. Right. I actually tried to get DC to collect the whole series in a book a few years uh, way back, uh, you know, like 10 years ago or whatever, and was shot down, sadly. But that would have been fun. You know, when I was when I was at MAD, one of the things that we talked about doing was reissuing issues of Plop inside the magazine. Right. Didn't we do one? We did one, right? Did we do one? I think we did the first one, and that was it. And I never understood why quite. Oh, yeah. How we even did that. Yeah, you're right. We did. I forgot about it. What yeah. issue was that in? I do not recall. <laughs> but yeah, that was going to be a thing. I, I never even got that picture. I just was like, I was told we're going to reprint plot number one in this issue. It was like an, I feel like it was an April or, you know, a springtime issue, but that's about all I could tell you. And nobody ever said, we might do more of these. So that, that's all I ever got out of it. I'm going to have to go. I can't believe it's only been a couple of years and I've forgotten about that, but uh, I'm going to have to go look that up. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can find it while we're talking. I'm sure the printing was way better than the original printing. Right. Uh, I actually had also been involved in a plop reprint because, like, really early in my career at DC, um, I edited about two-thirds of the Millennium Editions, and one of them was plop number one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it says here it was Mad Magazine number seven, 2019. Oh, seven. Okay. So that was my last issue. Ah. 
That's probably why I forgot about it. Yeah, I hear you. I think by the time it came out, um, I was already gone. So, you know, mm. I didn't, I didn't review the yeah. issue before it went to the printer like I would normally do. Gotcha. So then we come to a story called Night of the Drooling Snarl, as we were starting to talk about before, which is kind of a werewolf committing crimes in New York City story, which is a great concept. And it's full of gangsters and... Racial stereotypes. Yes. The kind <laughs> we love. No, wait, wait. Not really. Not really racial, but... Uh, but but there are definitely, like, stereotype characters of, like, Italian... Italian, Italian mobster types. In fact, and also hidden things in here, like there's a guy named Dicko Milgramo, who's obviously a reference to Al Milgram. I thought I thought that's what that was, yeah. It's got to be. It's absolutely got to be. But there's a lot of other um, – there's names of um, people that I know Sergio knew. Yes. People – and I mean throughout the book, not just in this yeah. story. But, um, no, I noticed that, especially in the last story. Yeah. So this story has a lot of inventive layouts and things. I love that point where – there's a werewolf attacking um, one of these mobsters and sort of a vampire kind of appears over the werewolf's shoulder to attack him. And it's like a, you know, the kind of three panel, like a single panel sort of broken up into three boxes that any number of like real fancy artists in the mid 1970s might've done. Yeah. It sort of suggests a pan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Sergio was perfectly capable of doing more sophisticated layouts. A lot of his stuff is very, you know, it's very straightforward because he's trying to be, capture the comedy of the moment. But that doesn't mean he couldn't do, you know, more sophisticated kind of approaches to an individual panel or whatever. Like the very last panel in this story with these two guys around the pier and the sun's coming up. Yeah, I agree. I think I think Sergio, like his... I think job number one is clarity in the, in the storytelling and in the humor. For sure. But that didn't prevent him from, you know, just being creative if, if it warranted it. But he wouldn't do it just gratuitously. Right. I like this one panel. There's a panel that has like a couple sort of hugging in the moonlight sitting on a bench. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's and beautiful. It doesn't relate to the story at all. It's just <laughs> kind of like a transitional thing to show that the show there's a full moon. Mm-hmm. You know, to set up for the next werewolf attack. Right. And you sort of expect that the couple's going to get attacked, but then the next panel is meanwhile, and then you see <laughs> werewolf attacking a gangster elsewhere. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I, I'm finding as I look at comics from the 70s a lot is that editorial oversight was not real rigorous you know like there there are things in my other podcast where we're looking at the defenders from the beginning and there are like storylines that just don't go anywhere sometimes or whatever and nobody seems to have noticed but you're right this one panel is kind of lovely and it's kind of oddly it all it establishes is oh there's a full moon yeah but it's sort of an open panel with no borders and uh, yeah, it's it's different looking. Yeah. Then we come to that return of the elephant, which 
It's a sequel. I don't. I don't think I've ever read the first one. I may have, but I, it's been a long time. I don't yeah. just don't remember it. But sure. that poor little elephant was being tortured and bullied by this skeezy-looking clown. Right. It's um, kind of a reverse Dumbo. Mm-hmm. And I actually watched Dumbo like six months ago or something, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. But he has tiny little ears, and then the clown in his act falls off the high wire, and as he falls, passes by the elephant and grabs its ears, so now the ears are all stretched out and awful. <laughs> it's sad. And it's sad at the end. It's like these there are all, all these spectators who are just standing there and laughing. Yeah. <laughs> like, sheesh. One of the interesting things about this story is the previous stories, like you mentioned, you know, Cain tells a story and then Abel. Yeah. And this one, Sergio is actually telling the story, but he's kind of like, he's kind of dressed as a snidely whiplash sort of character with a 19th century cloak and top hat. And he gets more evil looking towards the end. (laughs) Like in the last panel, he looks really kind of mean. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think people weren't supposed to look at this and go, oh, it's Sergio. It was just like some generic character who he drew to look like himself. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah, funny. he's maybe supposed to be like a circus ringmaster or something, but he's got like a cane with a skull head and yeah, it's just making me want, want to call Sergio again and say, okay, what was up with this guy? <laughs> For sure. And, um, you know, who knows if he'd remember, I don't know. I, I, I don't really know the guy, so I couldn't say like, Maybe he'll remember every moment of it. I, I don't know. He might. He's got a really uh, good memory. Like an oh, elephant. Right. <laughs> like an elephant with tiny ears. I don't think I've ever met him. I mean, I've like said hi in a hallway, and that's about it, you know? Well, he's he's fun to meet. Um, and he used to mm-hmm. come into the mad offices, so um, I guess you just missed him every time. Yeah, apparently. I used to see him when we when I used to work the convention booths for DC and we'd be setting up or something and he'd be on his way to the table and he'd just kind of walk by and wave at us and go, hi DC guys. And then just keep going. You know? <laughs> so it was always nice to see him that way. Yeah. So after the elephant story, you've got another one page interstitial where the horror hosts are talking to the uh, queen of hearts and she's saying, is this true? And she's upset about the story. Yes. And there's her famous catchphrase. Off with their heads. heads. (laughs) Oh, and there's even a text piece, too. Yeah, it's sort of a Sergio biography. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very interesting. I I knew a lot of this stuff in the bio, but there were were a few things that I had not heard. Um, So it was was, uh, informative as well. Yeah. And then I was actually wondering, which I'm never going to be able to find it, but, you know, that the idea for Plop came from a story that Steve Skates brought in called Clop. Right. And Joe Orlando came up with the idea of having Sergio draw it because they thought it was such a bad story that only a humorous approach could save it. Yeah, and then it turns out it did in spades because I think it was up for awards or maybe won an award. Mm. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, the story did really well. And then, yeah, out of that came... I guess they were, Sergio was at lunch with 
I think Carmine Infantino and Joe Orlando, and they were talking about doing a new humor book. Mm. And I think Carmine was the way the story goes. Carmine was racking his brain, trying to figure out what to call it. Hmm. And Sergio said, well, you could call it anything. I, I don't think that really matters. And Carmine <laughs> said, well, no, you can't, can't call it anything. Like, for example, you can't call it plop. <laughs> and, and Sergio said, of course you can. And then he started like he's want to do, he starts drawing on a napkin and he's, he's, he did like a handful of gags that had things going plop. Yeah. And he had the guys laughing and they're like, you're right. It works. That's hilarious. And it's so funny because like there were ads for plop that kept showing up in the DC books before the series launched that showed like the heart surgeon dropping a heart in the operating room and the big sound effect was plop. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, apparently his idea really took root. Yeah. Amazing. Like, he sold it right there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is just about the last story, You Never Listen to Me Anymore, which is narrated by Eve. And it's it's pretty funny because it's just this, this married couple and the guy is thinking and not paying attention to his wife because he's thinking about formulas and stuff. And she's just going on and on and on and on about friends of theirs and people they know and stuff. And of course this is just riddled with names that, you know, Sergio knew, obviously probably all of them. I mean, I recognize like half of them. Yeah. Bob Foster, Don Rico. Sure. I'm surprised Evan Ears not in here. Yeah. They might, uh, who knows? Maybe they didn't know each other yet. Jerry DeFuccio. Uh-huh. Um, Jack Mandelson, big cartoonist. and But there's another story with kind of an environmental bent because yeah. the guy is very concerned about the population explosion that was going on and how um, there wasn't going to be enough resources and enough food and things for people. But if we all get reduced to a tiny size, there, there will be plenty to go around. Yeah, and wasn't there uh, – what was that movie with Matt Damon – yeah, where uh, I'm gonna have to look. It's it seems when I was reading this, I thought, oh, they totally ripped off this story because <laughs> it's it's all about trying to get people to um, go through this process where they become very small and they live in these communities where they, you know, consume very little and it's you know right. trying to, to save the world. And um, it's like it's like right out of the story. It really is. I never saw the movie myself. I did see the movie. It wasn't great. The idea was great, but the the execution was kind of weird. Right. Uh, downsizing. Oh, yeah. Right. Which I... It sounds like it ought to be a movie about people getting fired, but it's not. So the story starts with, uh, as you mentioned, the man is, is just not listening to his wife. She's talking incessantly and she's really annoyed by the fact that he's just thinking of his science formula and he's not uh, listening to her. So it turns out the formula is successful. He uses it on himself. And so she takes that opportunity to put him in a bird cage, locks the cage and he's a captive audience now. So the last two panels, she's just, it's just, like uh, as many 
tiny words as you can fit yeah. in her balloon. <laughs> she's she's just jabbering on and on and on, and he's forced to listen. So that's yeah, kind of another um, yeah. This story wouldn't be out of place in weird science. Yeah, for sure, because it has that ironic EC ending. Yeah, it does. Amazing. And then we just get a couple more pages where they sort of wrap up the framing sequence mm-hmm. where our uh, horror hosts are found guilty by the uh, Queen of Hearts and the other Alice in Wonderland characters. But they're at the end of their story, too, when they sort of fall out of the uh, book that they were in. But then they get smushed by the book. Yeah, they <laughs> at the last minute, but the book falls on them. And again, another plop reference. Yeah. There's a big plop sound effect as the book falls on them. Right. So by the time I got to the end of this, I'm like, you know, first I was thinking, gee, I wonder if this is leftover material from plop. And then by the time I got to the end, I thought there's no way this could not be. It just has to be. Yeah, Uh, for sure. You know, maybe they, uh, you know, maybe they came up with the wraparound sequence afterwards. Mm, that could be. And truthfully, now I feel like if anyone ever, if DC ever got around to collecting plop, they should include this issue. Yeah. Because it's clearly just extending what was going on in that series in a lot right. of ways. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's very much in the same vein. If, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't intended as an issue of plop, it's it's definitely in the spirit of it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now we're going to jump ahead 30 years. 30 just about, years. Just about exactly. Wow. To, to Solo, issue number 11, which is the Sergio Aragonis issue. And this is a series that was created by Mark Chiarello, who... Basically, every issue was dedicated to, like, a single artist. So there was a Richard Corbin issue and a Teddy Christensen issue and a this issue and a that issue. And there was a, this one was the Sergio Aragonis issue. It's on real nice paper compared to that DC Superstars. And, it, you know, <laughs> definitely has great coloring and lettering. Yeah, lettering by Stan Sakai. Yeah. And, and Tom, Tom Luth and Lee Lowridge coloring. And I only mention that because... In the DC superstars and generally in the 70s comics, you know, nobody looked forward to seeing who colored this because it just wasn't going to be any good no matter who did it pretty much. Yeah. Because of the reproduction, not because of, you know, the person. Right. The paper and just the process was, Yeah, it turned, it turned things to mush, you know, yeah. you couldn't, couldn't really see the line work that was, I mean, that's why original art to me is so great, especially for older comics. Because you can look at an, a piece of original art and go, oh, that's what it was supposed to look like. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. But this issue is, you know, gorgeous. And, I mean, this is many years later after Sergio has gotten a million, about a million issues of Gru under his belt and miniseries like Ma- The Mighty Magnor, I think it was called. And, you know, he's really stretched out in a lot of different directions with his storytelling. And yeah. it's kind of, kind of, there's like an ease to this that is so lovely. Right off the bat, you know, there's like these sketches a page or two in of different sort of uh, soldier characters. It's just beautiful. 
You know, it's pencil sketches. Yeah, it's like little model drawings that he did for a story. Yeah. It's like, man, this guy, you know. <laughs> and no matter how cartoony he gets, he can really draw. You know, Sergio did um, a lot of work for Bongo while I was mm-hmm. editor. And um, I remember he, like, he would, there was this one story, it was a Bart Simpson story that involved a spaceship, like a rocket ship. Uh-huh. And I remember there was one that had a helicopter and the detail was amazing. I mean, it was still drawn in his style, you know, so kind of very loose, a little bit scratchy, you know, fountain pen kind of drawing, not using straight edges or lips guides or anything like that. So very hand drawn, but the detail, you know, it was like Russ Heath was so well known for the way he would draw tanks and, yeah, uh, and, you know, machine guns and anything in the stories that he did, it was very precise and accurate. And Sergio did exactly the same thing, just in a more freehand kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we start out with Sergio sort of introducing the issue from his studio and then walking outside into what looks like his yard. And there's a dog there that looks just like Roferto from Gru. Mm-hmm. Boy, do I love Gru. What was his dog? Oh, I'm sure. When he drew Roferto and crew, he was drawing his dog. So, so I guess this is the same dog. (laughs) Although I can't imagine it was still living. Well, I suppose not. And he's sort of talking about how great it is to be a freelancer and you can relax and take time off whenever you want to. And then he gets a phone call from Mark Chiarello, I assume, about the deadline. And suddenly the last panel is him burning the midnight oil and frantically, you know, <laughs> figuring how many hours he has to work to get through all the pages he has to draw. And yeah. it's, man, it's funny as anything. It's also so personal. Um, yes. And the, the thing I love about this issue, aside from, you know, it's just really funny. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it tells you so much about Sergio. Yeah. I mean, a couple of the stories are, you know, autobiographic. Yeah. Uh, but aside from that, like this opening page, you see his studio and that's what it looked like. Cause I've mm-hmm. been there. I've been to his house and that's what his yard looks like. So in the third panel, he's, he's playing a Simpsons pinball machine, which he has in his studio or used to have. Um, and you can see the, his Rubin award from the national cartoon society. I mean, because I've been to his studio, I recognize all this stuff, and it's yeah. it's all very accurate. And, oh, okay. You know, in, in uh, panel five, he's do, making a boat model, which is one of his hobbies. Yeah. And you can see Astro Boy on the shelf behind him. He loves Astro Boy. Hmm. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's just so personal. And I, I sort of view this issue as the prototype for the series that he did uh-huh. at Bongo, which I edited, which was called Sergio Aragonas Funnies. And he did 12 issues of that. And, um, you know, like every issue had an autobiographic story. Um, there was an historic, like Sergio's version of, a, of an actual historic right. event. And the only, I think the only difference is with Sergio Funnies, he also had a lot of one-page gags and puzzles and games and um, things like that that aren't in this. This is really all stories. But other than that, it's it's like Sergio just doing 
his own stories without another writer. Mark Evanier did write the Batman story, which is at the end of this issue. But everything else is just pure Sergio. You know, it's just um, he was doing the kind of comic he would he would like to do. I was going to mention that you know this is all written by Sergio. There's no except for that one story at the end, and it reads perfectly fine. I mean, maybe you know DC didn't have the confidence in the '70s that he could write it well enough. I don't know. This this reads beautifully throughout, of course. And it starts with a story called I Killed Marty Feldman, which is, man, it's so funny where he's um, has the opportunity to be, you know, have a minor part in a movie. And it's shooting in, where is it, Mexico? Yeah, Mexico City. Mexico City, yeah. And he's, you know, this is like his, I guess he's in college or something. Oh, 1982, excuse me. So not college. Yeah, no, this is, but but he does return to... Um, the studio where his father was a film producer. Mm, yeah. Um, and in in the um, Sergio Aragonés funny series, there there is a story where he's still in college, and his father calls him up and says, "We're we're shooting a Daniel Boone movie on location, mm. and we need a lot of extras to play Indians. So can you get as many of your uh, schoolmates?" to come down so we can use them as extras. Um, so there's a whole story about that. And you get, you get that insight into him as a, really as a kid, still in school, studying to be an architect and, and what his dad was like and, and how he and his fellow students kind of ruined a day's worth of shooting. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I don't know how I missed this series. It's it's really fun. I'm I'm always touting it uh, to people who haven't heard of it or aren't you know haven't been able to locate it. No, now I'm gonna start hunting. Yeah, it's it's twelve issues, and um, it for me as an editor, it was the most fun I've ever had at work mm, because wow. Sergio would first of all Sir, before that when Sergio was doing he did a Trios of Horror story for us, right. And then when Mad in 2008, when Mad went to a quarterly schedule, I think. Yeah. So they, they had been either monthly or maybe eight times a year, and then they cut down to quarterly. And Sergio and I had been talking about him doing more Simpsons stuff because he's a rabid Simpsons fan, mm. but he never seemed to have the time for it. And so the day that that news broke, I called him as soon as I got to the office Huh. And I, I said, Sergio, I'm really sorry. I heard about Mad. I know that's you know going to be a blow to your income. Um, mm. However, if I may, <laughs> <laughs> it it seems that now you might maybe have some more time for Simpsons comics, and I'd like to give you all the work you can take. And wow. uh, so he did. He's like, yes, absolutely. And so he started filling in on the work he was missing from Mad with uh, Simpsons stuff. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, he would call me up and he'd say, you know, I've got layouts. I have a script. I'd like to come in and show it to you. Mm-hmm. And I would say, oh, Sergio, no, don't, you know, don't bother. You live way out in Ohio. We're in Santa Monica. It's going to take you an hour and a half to get in. You know, just fax it or just email it. Right. And, you know, he did that for a couple of times, but then. There was one time when um, I was just trying to save him 
from having to sit in LA traffic, you know, yeah. an hour and a half. <laughs> and he said, no, listen, you don't, you don't understand. When I was in New York, I used to go into the mad offices and I used to go into DC and I would get an immediate reaction. If I had, you know, if I had a story, I would, I would show it to the editor. I would show my layouts or I'd show the finished art and I would immediately know if it was good or not, if it was funny or not. And he said, ever since I moved out to California in the seventies, I, I haven't had that. I've missed it. Huh. And so now I'm working for a publisher on the West coast that I can drive to. So please let me come in. Let me, you know, let, let's go to lunch. Let me, you know, talk about ideas. Let me show you. Mm-hmm. And so I, suddenly I got it and I said, Oh yeah, well then if, if that's the case, absolutely. So he would come in and I looked forward to the days when Sergio came in because we, we would go to lunch and we'd have a blast. Yeah. Um, but the work part of it was basically Sergio entertaining me with a story. Yeah, I'm sure. Or, or two stories or three, whatever he had. Right. And he would, you know, he would like hand me the drawings and then he would read the script and he would do voices and he would kind of act things out. He'd stand up, get out of his chair <laughs> and uh, pantomime and act things out. And it was great. It was just really great. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. So in this story, Sergio is dressed up as a cop with a fake gun and then he, he, you know, he's kind of wrapped up his work for the day, but he's still in his costume and is walking through the, the back lot of the studio and he sees a bunch of guys dressed as pirates and they say, we're shooting this movie Yellowbeard with all these people in it, including Marty Feldman. And he gets very excited. And I have to say, I mean, I've never seen Yellowbeard, but it, it has a reputation of being a really terrible movie, despite having a million great actors in it and comedians. Yeah, I think that was the, you know, that, I think they were counting on that to really sell it. Because uh, yeah. it did have a really great cast of actors and comedians. Right. I mean, they don't even mention here. It's a movie that's been on my list for years just because I'm enough of a Python fan that it's like, I should see this, I think. Because they don't even mention, they mention a bunch of the actors. They don't even mention that Graham Chapman is the lead. And um, a couple of other Pythons are in it too, you know. But anyway, so Sergio... Is walking around the lot and meets Marty Feldman, and I mean it's it's so terrible, but it's so funny that you know Marty Feldman just has a meltdown when he sees this guy coming toward him in a cop, you know, just as a cop with a gun on his waist. Yeah, and then he actually puts his hand on the gun and he says, "Oh no, 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 it's just a prop." And Feldman's like freaking out because it looks like he's going for his gun. The bottom of the page where he's trying to explain that he's a cartoonist, but he's an actor, but he's in a, you know, it's incredibly funny because it's like getting more and more manic. Yeah. Um, and I, the way he draws it. I really love how, I mean, you know, people stand in line to meet Sergio and geek out and, you know, I mean, he's so famous and he's so revered. And it's really cool to see the side of him that is a fanboy. Yes. Because he's geeking out over meeting Marty Feldman and he's talking about, well, maybe I can get his autograph and, you know, maybe we can have some coffee and we'll talk about British comedy and Marty <laughs> Python. And mm-hmm. when he when he blows it with Marty after meeting him and, and realizes that he's just 
presented himself very badly and just freaked this poor guy out. Yeah. Um, he's like, Oh, I'm such an idiot. You know? Yeah. I think we've all been there to some degree. Yeah. Maybe not, not with the uniform and gun perhaps. No, but I think we've all, like, I remember meeting one of my favorite rock stars. I was able to get into the dressing room after the show. Huh. And I guess they'd had a particularly bad show with a lot of stuff going wrong. A lot of spinal tap type malfunctions. <laughs> Uh-huh. And and uh, the rock star was Todd Rundgren. Oh, okay, okay. So it was a Todd Rundgren Utopia show. Nice. And so I'm standing around, I'm talking to some of the other guys in the band, and, you know, they didn't seem to be in the greatest mood. And Todd was, like, sitting on this folding chair in the middle of two wardrobe racks. Mm. And there was, like, this line of people waiting to talk to him. And he just looked like, I'm just tired. I just want to go to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And but I wanted to talk to him and never met him. So I get up there, and you know, like there I am standing in front of Todd. He's sitting in a chair, and the thing that came out of my mouth was, "Gee, I feel like uh, you're Santa Claus, and I should sit on your lap or something." Oh my god! <laughs> and, and Todd looks at me and he goes, "You want to sit on my lap?" Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I meant, you know, Santa Claus, like I'm waiting in line to, you know, you're sitting, uh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. It's hard to back out of those things. <laughs> that was hilarious. Oh, my yeah. God. But, but you know, seeing Sergio going through something like that, you know, it kind of very humanizes him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he goes back to the studio the next day, and he's hoping to have another chance to meet Marty Feldman and talk to him like a human being. And he hears that the, that the poor guy had a heart attack and died the night before when, you know, so he's blaming himself. And yeah, I think it's, it, it would be very natural after that experience he had with him. Sure. And, uh, Sergio sort of alludes to this in the visuals. He doesn't really say it, but, uh-huh. um, I think what he thought was that maybe Marty was, doing drugs and when he mm-hmm. saw him dressed as a cop he thought he was being busted right um so you know it's kind of very natural to think gee i was probably one of the last people to see him and the guy had a heart attack uh, yeah that's awful yeah mm-hmm. anyway so then you know it kind of wraps up with sergio sort of explaining that the the movie he was involved with came out like during an earthquake and it never got really released properly. And anyway, it's, it's a funny story. Yeah. The, sh- the theater it premiered and collapsed and then they just didn't, didn't bother releasing it after that or something, I guess. Uh, yeah. Maybe that was the only print. <laughs> uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, then we go into uh, old West story called the edge. That is a really great kind of morality play. Mm-hmm. And man, it's so beautiful. I mean, again, you know, because this is in the Old West, there's like these big wide open spaces and there's horses and, you know, saloons and everything. And um, it's basically about a young guy who becomes obsessed with guns and, and wants to be the fastest gun. And, you know, we've seen stories like this before a million times in, in some of the better Westerns. The kid comes along and wants to be, you know, challenge 
a gunfighter mm-hmm. and his girlfriend sort of trying to help him. She pours coffee, hot coffee on his right hand in the saloon and yeah, to try to give try to try to give her boyfriend the edge in the shootout yeah. that, that he's instigated. And it doesn't work because the dude's left-handed. <laughs> but but I mean, it's just so beautifully drawn and simple, and you know, it's engaging. Like yeah. there, you know, there are certain like writers and cartoonists who I always find I can settle in and read their stuff, and it, it's their work, and it's just uh, engrossing. And that's even though this is a very simple and familiar story. Because it's Sergio and the the way he draws it and the way he tells the story, it just pulls you right in. Yeah, and he loves westerns. Um, sure, I think you mentioned Bat Lash earlier. Yeah, and uh, I mean he grew up on westerns. He's he's definitely got the chops to, to write a good western. And uh, yeah, you know this is obviously played for laughs, but. Um, you know, you can just tell the love is there. Just all the details in the saloon and the all the backgrounds, really great. Absolutely, and like on the last page, the transition from the second to the third panel, where the uh, young guy is sort of taunting the old gunfighter, and then you know, right in the middle of a sentence, you go to the next panel, and the gunfighter's pulled his gun and shot, and. I don't know. There's something really compelling about the way he, he keeps the camera steady and just lets you see the action. It's very simple. Yeah. And I love the reaction of the horse. Oh yeah. And that shot and all the people that are cowering in the doorway. Yes. Or around the side of the building. I think between two buildings. Um, yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah. Do you own Sergio Aragonas art? I do own a few things. Nice. Um, I have this one really nice uh, piece that he gifted me with that I think he was doing a Batman story for DC. Mm. Um, I don't remember what it was. It might have been for Matt, actually. Maybe it wasn't. But I, Or you know what? I think it could have been um, he was doing like warm-up drawings for the statue that he designed. Ah, uh, yes. The, the mad Sergio Batman statue. Yep. Or I guess it's not mad, but it's um, it's mad. It's it was black and white. The right, the, the yeah, black, black and white. white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so he basically was. I think he was doing warm up sketches for that, and then just did a bunch of those, kind of recreated a bunch of those drawings on a page for me. Mm. So it just says uh, some Batman's for Morrison. <laughs> it's like a whole page of like Batman on the Bat Cycle and Batman. You know, punching crooks and various things. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. The next piece is a two-pager called The Case of the Adulterous Husband, and it's a a pantomime piece um, about a woman hiring a detective to find out what her no-good husband has been up to. Um, And he's, you know, cheating on her. The detective follows him, taking pictures and things, and he's cheating on her. But wouldn't you know it, the person the husband is cheating on with is the detective's wife or maybe girlfriend or maybe daughter. No, 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 wait, there's pictures of them together in the last panel. I'm going to say wife. Yeah, I think it's his wife. <laughs> they look very husband and wifely. 
Yeah. Anyway, it's it's a silly little story, but it's impeccably told. He's just the master of twist endings, you know? He really is. Um, um, let's see. Then we come to uh, a story called... Here. Uh, did you want to say something else? I'm sorry. No, I'm good. Uh, okay, then we come to a story called Heroes, which is a really interesting, I thought, given everything that's going on today um, in our country. That, yeah, you know, a real statement about... Well, he even says it in here. He says, you know, the victors write the history. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, I'm, I'm probably on at least a monthly basis hearing about something that I was never taught growing up in school. Like never, it never came across in any of my history classes. Right. And you find yourself just going, really? That happened? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it was not in the best interest of, somebody for us to know that so it wasn't in our history books yep there's a lot of that going around and this is basically about what his education was like growing up in mexico where he was learning about all these mexican heroes and also an irish brigade that fought on the mexican side during the sort of you know expansion period of the united states when the u.s basically claimed a lot of land from Mexico right. that, you know, would become like a lot of the Southwest and even California. And, you know, nobody knows anything about that the, at this point and nobody talks about it. And he um, is looking at his daughter's textbook to see what they say about Mexico's fighting Irish. And it's like three lines and, and it's really derogatory towards yeah, the Irish. And yeah, and they, you know, Sergio's like, these guys were my heroes. And I'm, you know, the American textbook makes them sound like a bunch of drunks. Right. Who just did it's, it for the money. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And that's, yeah. I mean, look, it, the fact that they were mentioned at all is kind of amazing, to tell you the truth. I mean, I never heard of them at all because I grew up on the East Coast. Sergio's daughter probably never heard of Peter Stuyvesant or whatever. Uh, from New York history, yeah, but yeah, I agree. I I had not heard of this part of that history either. I didn't know there were, was a must have been a pretty big fighting force of Irishmen, right? That helped the Mexicans in that war. And one of the uh, panels, the one just before the one that shows him with his daughter, and it shows uh, it shows. A map of the U.S. and Mexico, and it shows what Mexico used to be. Right. And then, you know, so you can see sort of like the, the zone that we took over, the part of Mexico that we claimed. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's like, I mean, Sergio says in, in the book here, he says Mexico lost half its territory. Yeah. And it pretty much looks like half from the from the map. I mean, it's all yeah. California, Texas. Yeah. Louisiana. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, it makes you think about what our past is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my country, but there are definitely things in our history, incidents that I'm very not proud of. <laughs> For sure, yes. And, and, and when, you find, when you find out about one of them, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's distressing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you like, you like to think of your country as especially i think those of us who, who read comic books 
you know, we want to think of America as Superman. Mm. You know, it's always the good guy. And uh, every so often you find out, well, we were the good guy a lot, but not always. <laughs> right. The interesting thing with the story, too, is at the end, you could be really depressed by this ending, but he just kind of keeps, he, he has a very philosophical way of looking at it at the end. Yeah, I noticed that, too. Very upbeat. Yeah, which is great. It would be easy to get down about this kind of stuff, and he, he chooses not to. Yeah, I and and he's like that in real life. You know, there are things he's really passionate about mm -hmm. and very much against, but, you know, he doesn't let it get him down. He kind of ex accepts it, does what he can to change something if he can change it, mm -hmm. but if it's not within his ability to change it, he's kind of taking the stance of I'm the storyteller and I'm just letting you know what happened. Right. And I think he also realizes, Hey, I'm doing a, an entertaining comic book here. It's, it's not my job to make people feel bad about this, but yeah. it is yeah. important to me to, to communicate the history. For sure. Yeah. Then we move on to a quick two page pantomime story called beauty and the choosy beast, which is, a very silly little riff on, you know, King Kong and Skull Island and a Fairy Ray type who's being sort of put up for the ape to take away by the natives. And it's just a quick little thing where, you know, at the at the end, he's carrying her away and he's all excited that he's got this woman. And then he goes, hold on a second, puts his finger up, wait a second, walks into the bushes and comes back with like a, a tiny little ape costume for her to put on. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's kind of kinky. It is, uh, or not. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's like, why did that ape want to have a, an attraction for this woman in the first place? Well, I always wondered that when I watched King Kong. <laughs> yeah, you know? sure. Uh -huh. I, I think it's kind of natural when you see King Kong and you see sort of his infatuation with Fay Ray. Right. It's like, you know, what is it that he sees in her? Wouldn't he be, be more attractive if she looked more like a, an ape? Yes, I think it's um, just like the filmmakers are imposing their own, you know, viewpoint on the world on this anthropomorphic ape. Yeah, King Kong was kind of is kind of a recurring theme with Sergio. Ah, uh, really? Um, he did a yeah, he did a a cover a Sergio Aragonés funnies cover that was King Kong, and there's a a story that he, it's, it's kind of a famous story that he's told a lot, but he actually drew the story for one issue of Funnies. Mm. And it's about Bill Gaines' uh, obsession with King Kong and how Sergio made a giant King Kong head to put in Bill Gaines' window as a Christmas present. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's Yeah, it's, it's really funny. And that's one of the... You know, like I said, in every issue, there was one autobiographic story. Mm -hmm. And that was that was one of my favorites. You know, it's got the mad element, of course. And Bill yeah. Gaines is in there. And, um, you know, a lot of the mad guys are in there. Mm -hmm. Cool. Really good. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever seen that photo. You can Google uh, Bill Gaines' office King Kong. Oh, I'll take a look. And you'll you'll see it. Yeah, you'll see it. 
Um, but it's it's a fascinating story, like how how he how he made it, you know, made this giant thing out of paper mache and um, like carpet remnants, and <laughs> it was giant. So it was just massive, and you know they didn't know how they were going to get it to the mad office. Uh, yeah, I bet early in the morning before Bill came into the office, and uh, that's that's definitely one worth looking at. Yeah. Uh, the next story takes us back to feudal Japan. It's called The Sun and the Sword, and it is another lovely story and another man. I mean, his knowledge of these different periods, like the Old West, were, you know, in the you know, people who grew up with Western movies and stuff were kind of soaking in it. But to, he seems almost equally at home and adept with ancient Japan. And there's like a big, you know, on the second page is a big battle scene with a million characters um, on horses and on foot and with spears and swords and helmets. And it's like, wow, very impressive. Approved by Stan Sakai, yeah, that, I assume. It's it's like a half-page half splash. Yeah. What's that? I said approved by Stan Sakai, you I say assume. Stan? That it's... You know, he, he stands. Oh well, yeah. Um, Stan lettered it. So he must have. Yeah, I, I bet he loved it. Yeah, and it's great. It's a really beautiful, sad story about a, you know this this family where the the young son has gone off to war, and the parents don't know if he's dead or alive after this big battle, and the father is a sword maker. The father's trying to find out if the kid's dead or alive, and they, they hear that the son has been taken captive so the father makes the best sword he's ever made in his whole career to take to sort of barter for the life of his son yeah and then the uh, the warlord recognizes how how amazing the sword is i mean he's marveling at it and says he wants to test it before he makes the trade makes mm-hmm. the exchange so he does and declares that, you know, it's the best sword he's ever seen. And so he authorizes the exchange, the prisoner exchange for the sword. And then it has a very tragic ending because you find out that the person that he tested the sword on was the son. It is really tragic and very sad. And, you know, the sword maker takes the sword back home and throws it into the sea. And the story basically says that he, he made no more swords after that. I was a, a little bit unclear, I have to admit, about whether this was meant to be the son or just some other random person. Because the minister says, before, the minister says he cannot give your son's life back to you. Oh, but okay, they already, then it's like a flashback. That, that's where I'm getting confused. That's meant to be a flashback. Yeah, then it says, um, it says, it says in the next panel, and as the minister explained the reason for the denial, the old sword maker could, with brutal clarity, visualize the last moments of his beloved son's life. And right. then it shows the warlord pointing you, and I, I think you can see the son. So I think if you go back to the beginning, you can tell it's the same guy. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I guess I um was not very clear on it myself then. All the elements were there. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it is. I mean, it doesn't come right out and say that he chose his son to test the sword on. 
No, but, I just need um, to. Be, apparently, I need to be hit over the head more. With uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's funny that you know I've been rereading all these uh, defenders issues, like I said before, for the um, that podcast. And it's like every time I come to a flashback or something like that, it kind of the storytelling often gets a little harder to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Um, you know, it, it is a beautiful story and tragic. And this one does not have a redeeming joke at the end or anything. It's just, no, it's very. It's um, it doesn't have Sergio kind of cheerfully wrapping it up. But we get we get that right on the next page. Fortunately, not that he's referring to this story, but just the next page. We go straight into a funny story of Sergio's um, early days in New York City, where he has come from quitting architecture school to be a cartoonist and coming to New York in the middle of summer in 1962 with no money and trying to figure out how to make his way and sell yeah. comics and cartoons and stuff and sleeping on park benches. And didn't speak a word of English. Yeah. And I love the idea of him. So he makes a little money by reciting poetry at some, you know, beatnik coffee house. And then when he runs out of poems, he just starts, you know, reciting pop song lyrics <laughs> yeah. in, in Spanish. It's like <laughs> Nobody knows brilliant. the difference. Yeah, of course. It's just fantastic. It's a very funny little story, and I love this business about him getting... He has no place to stay, so the, the owner of the coffee shop says, you can stay in this basement in the, on this mattress, but when he when morning comes and Sergio gets up, he realizes he's locked in. He doesn't have a way to get out, so he's stuck there for hours because, it's, of course, it's a, you know the kind of place where people hang out in the evening. Yeah, it doesn't open until late afternoon. Uh, it's and, so funny. And, and he was planning to visit more magazines to try to sell his cartoons that day. Mm-hmm. But he's just locked inside the whole day. And there's a great moment at the very end where he's, you know, he, he's still spending his evening reciting poetry, but he's also kind of talking up a, a young woman at one of the tables there. <laughs> you know, he's like, Looking for a good time. Yeah. He says, do you live around here? <laughs> so, and the panel before that, he says, no more benches or basements for me. So I think he's planning on going home with yeah. that woman. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. Sergio told me that, like, kind of directly related to this story, which is, you know, really just about him coming to, to New York and trying to sell his cartoons, mm-hmm. that the... Uh, I think it I think it actually covers I think it shows him going to a couple of places. Yeah. On on the second page it has him going to a few yes. magazines. And he keeps getting rejected because the cartoons don't have any words. Right. And and they and the drawings are weird. They're not like, you know, most it's not like the style of most American cartoons. Yeah. So finally, the, the guy in the third panel says, this is too crazy. You should go to MAD. And Sergio goes, MAD, yeah, right. You know, so he's yeah. thinking, there's no way. You know, I love MAD. MAD is the pinnacle. There's no way they would ever accept someone like me from Mexico who uh-huh. doesn't speak any English. But but this guy saying he should go to MAD gives him the idea to, well, maybe I should. <laughs> and... So he told me he the day he went up to MAD, mm-hmm. he figured he would ask for Antonio Prohias. Uh-huh. Because to- Antonio was from Cuba, 
Right. And he knew that he spoke Spanish, so Sergio figured he could interpret for him. <laughs> and he didn't he didn't really realize that like the freelancers don't really work at MAD. Yes. Um, they might hang out there or bring stuff in, or if they have to do corrections, there's a place where they can, you know, there's like a drawing board where they can go and, and do corrections, but otherwise they're working at home or in their studio. Right. But Sergio assumed Antonio Perias would be there, but, and as luck would have it, he was. Huh. So he went in and he asked for Perias and um, Antonio Perias comes out and they start speaking Spanish and Prohias took to Sergio right away, mm. and he started introducing him to the to the editors, to Nick Meglin and you know mm -hmm. whoever else was there, and show you know so Sergio is showing his cartoons, and Prohias keeps referring to him as my brother Sergio, <laughs> as he's thinking my my Hispanic brother. Uh -huh. So Sergio said for a long time, they kept calling him Mr. Prohias. <laughs> they thought his name was Sergio Prohias. And like he would sign the work Aragonis and they didn't know what that was. Like who's Aragonis? <laughs> oh my God. That's fantastic. <laughs> but, but again, you know, like how he was, how he was, uh, you know, the uh, nightclub owner let him stay in the basement. When he started working for mad, he still didn't have a place to live. And mm. they used to let him stay in the offices at night. And so, yeah, they would, they would just like, you know, lock him in there. And luckily, you know, mad would open at, you know, eight or nine in the morning. So he didn't have to wait all day, mm. but um, he would, I think he slept on Bill Gaines sofa and, you know, he had a sofa in his office and that's where sure. he slept. And he said at night, you know, like after all the guys left, he would go through the flat files and just look at artwork. So he'd look at all this stuff by Wally Wood and oh, yeah. George Evans and, you know, wow. Jack Davis, all the greats. And <laughs> that was how he spent his evenings until he got <laughs> his own place. What, they didn't have a TV? I guess not. I guess that, <laughs> Probably wasn't, not. that wasn't a thing back then. No, I'm sure. Have a TV in your office. And wasn't mad back then, like, if you sold a piece, wouldn't they just, like, cut you a check on the spot? I think pretty much, yeah. That's you you'd yeah. go in and uh, you would leave with a check. Yeah, different times. Yeah, I don't know who the genius was who invented the payment process. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, now I think it takes at least a month. Right, and, and DC's DC and Mad, they're fast actually. You know, compared to some places. Yeah, DC was DC was. I've done a couple of jobs for DC. Right. And they always pay really fast. Mm -hmm. But I've done – most of the work I've done was for Fox, you know, most of the freelance work, oh, uh -huh. like doing Simpsons jobs. And I've done, right. done a few things for Disney. And the general process seemed to be, you know, they would have 30 days to pay. And then at the end of the 30 days, I would check in and, you know, see what the status was. Right. And then somebody would tell me, oh, we don't seem to have your invoice. Can you resend it? Uh, and then you yeah. resend it, and then the 30 days starts all over again. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Not to disparage Fox No, it's just Disney, but, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, so Sergio talks about being an architecture student in this story. And when I started college for one year, 
I was an architecture student, having nothing to do with any of this, of course. But the thing that one of the things that put me off of architecture was that I had a summer internship in a local architect's office, and they kept talking about how he spent all his time chasing down billing, mm-hmm. like ninety percent of his time. It felt like you know, I mean, aside from the fact that like there's an enormous amount of very tricky math to be done if you were an architect, which I couldn't really do. <laughs> but that that just like drained any enthusiasm out of me. Yeah, that's um, you're right. It's a different time, and I, I think back back then it must have been great to know that once you were finished with a job, you'd have money. Yeah, you know? right. It wasn't going to be a prolonged process of waiting and chasing down and all that. Right. All right, so we're coming down to the end of the issue, and there's a two-pager, another two-pager that's a pantomime thing called The Lucky Snitch. It doesn't seem terribly lucky. No. But <laughs> these, these criminals are like, they've got this this guy who I guess is the snitch, who's, you know, he's tied up, they're putting on the cement overshoes on him. They take him out to a pier and throw him off at the end of the pier. And, you know, he comes up, just barely comes up for air, and then looks around and sees on the end of the pier that, you know, it's at low tide right now, so he's he's still doomed. And not to mention, there's also sharks circling around him for some yeah. reason. <laughs> so he's kind of screwed no matter what happens. Yeah, I love the expressions on the gangsters' faces in this. All the expressions, the, the five panels at the end when the guy comes up for air, coughing, you know, because he's got water in his lungs a little bit, and then he looks around and he's happy that he's alive, but then realizes, oh, wait, there's sharks, um, you know. It's like every panel is a completely different expression. Yeah. It's very cool and very economical. Unlike the um, Japanese war story, not a lot of different camera angles. It's all very straightforward because you're just telling the story the most economical way you can. Yeah, the camera is pretty stationary, and then it just kind of zooms in. Right. Yeah. And then we're on to the last story, which is the one written by Mark Evanier, a Batman story, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, I love the villain in this, the plumber. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, of course, the plumber, why not? How did we not have a plumber all these years? <laughs> I've been doing this thing on Facebook where I, I come across these old vintage photos. And every so often I'll I'll find one that I go, this looks like a Batman villain. So, oh, I, uh-huh. so I started doing like as if there's a series and it's like, you know, obscure Batman villain number 27. <laughs> Queen Crab, you know, it's this lady with a hat that looks like a giant crab on her head. Right. And then I make up a little background story. It's, it, I don't know, it's kind of like a, a fun writing exercise. <laughs> um, but I, it made me start real, you know, start thinking more about Batman villains and how many just crazy ones there are. I'm sure they were influenced by Dick Tracy villains. Oh, absolutely. Even yeah, I've, I've always thought that for sure. Yeah. Uh, so in this Batman story, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail because it's, um, you know, written by somebody, not not Sergio. But, you know, there's a, a movie studio that's filming a Batman, a scene from a Batman movie with the Joker and a guy playing Batman in Wayne Manor. And meanwhile, the plumber is finding his way into the Batcave. Yeah, they rented the movie studio, rented out Wayne Manor because it's obviously the perfect set. My favorite thing in this is 
the plumber has a has a vehicle that looks like a toilet. So the bowl the bowl part is is like his cockpit where his chair and his steering wheel is, and then it, the henchmen ride like up in the tank. <laughs> and it's got these big giant tires. It looks it looks like a Big Daddy Roth kind of uh, yeah. Like there should have been a model kit of this in the sixties. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And there's another great two thirds of the page splash page of the Bat Cave. Yeah, but it really looks like a fan's collection of bat stuff. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, there's like giant posters and costumes and mem- you know, it's it's a lot of memorabilia. Poison ivy in a jar for some reason. Yeah, what is she doing there? I don't know. <laughs> But it looks, I mean, it doesn't look like a doll. It looks like she's kind of life-size. It does, and she also looks annoyed. Yeah. Like, get me out of here already. And then Gru is in there. There's a jar with Gru. Oh, yeah. He he looks less annoyed. He's yeah. like, I don't care. Oh, I just caught something. Oh, what? If you look, like, just to the below and to the right of Poison Ivy, there's a suit of Japanese armor. Yes. And it's, oh. it's the armor that Sergio's wearing on the cover of this issue. Oh, my God. You're right. Wow. That's fantastic. I never noticed that. It's colored a little bit differently, but it's the same suit of armor. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even touch on this, but, you know, one of the Sergio's great claims to fame is the pieces in Mad where, like this panel, you could just look at it for... 20 minutes and keep finding stuff and finding stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I feel like I want to get out a loop. Yeah. And yeah. just look at every little detail because I'm sure there's little jokes in there that I, my eyes are missing. Right. I asked Sergio once, like he brought in something. Um, oh, we did an issue of Simpsons Comics that was. There's a bat skateboard. Oh, there is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. See it. Can, do continue. We did that like an Olympic issue of Simpsons comics, like a special Olympics issue when it, uh-huh. when the Olympics were in London. So we asked Sergio to do like a two page pinup that shows the London Olympics. Mm-hmm. Like, do whatever you want. Make it, you know, make it like a map of London or whatever. Yeah. And so he did one of his trademark crazy. You know everything but the kitchen sink, including the kitchen sink mm-hmm. things. And I asked him, you know, when he brought it in, it just blew me away. And I said, "So when you write something, like when you're writing a story, and you come to a, a page like this, yeah, do you ever have the instinct to just like hold back <laughs> and go, oh, I really don't want to have to draw a thousand people and." and all these costumes and props and things, you know, maybe I should scale it back. It'll be just as funny, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, do you ever have that, that impulse? And he said, no, when I'm writing, I'm the writer and I wear the writer's hat. Sure. And I don't worry about the art because that's the artist's job. (laughs) And he said, then when I'm the artist, I put on the artist hat and I draw whatever the writer told me to draw. And curse the writer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe not. But he, but, I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't write. You know, the thousand gags that are in a panel like that or a page like that. 
Well, I assume. you know, he'll do the layouts. Like the way he writes yes. is he'll write, you know, he'll do like very loose layouts and then he'll, you know, put notes uh-huh. uh, for dialogue and, you know, do margin notes and stuff like that. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's still like when he's doing those very, very loose layouts, he could think, well, I don't know if, yes, I don't know if I want to do a, a splash page here that, has all this detail that'll take me forever Mm. you know i'm not making enough money to do that i should i should pull back right but you know he just never does that yeah you can see that you know he takes a great amount of pleasure in the act of creation yeah you know and he gets he probably gets in that zone and he's just drawing away and filling in all these little details and bits and things and you know, I understand that, you know, like if you're writing or drawing or something, you you can get kind of caught up in that feeling of it doesn't really matter that it's difficult or whatever because it's so enjoyable to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. He he does enjoy it and he, he kind of loses himself in it. Mm-hmm. Well, we've come to the end of the issue, and man, what a! First of all, it was a, a great series. I mean, I don't know if you remember the rest of it, or you just focused on this one issue, but it's a fantastic series. I think anyone who hasn't read Solo, which is like I said, a series of one shots by all different artists, it's really worth looking at. Yeah, it's. I thought it was a brilliant idea and really well executed. I love the Darwin Cook issue. Oh my God! Yes, because it's. It's basically, here's an issue, do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, that seems to be the editorial direction from Mark. You know, you know, this is, you know, this is meant to be very personal and to give you a chance to just do something that impresses the hell out of everyone and isn't, you know, I mean, it's obviously there's certain restrictions in a, sure in a DC comic, but I think in general, it looks like people were just told, go have fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, Bill, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time. And I'm going to definitely look for those issues of Sergio Aragona's Funnies now. And um, Well, I might be able to hook you up. So, Oh, you're too kind. Send me, send me a, an email and we'll, uh, I'll see what I have. Ah, I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, if you hear back from Sergio and he wants to rebut everything we've said in this episode, <laughs> I'd be happy to talk to him. <laughs> you idiots! So, you got it completely wrong. <laughs> well, this has been great, Adam. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.